Miss Jane Marple was sitting by her window. The window looked over her garden, once a source of pride to her. That was no longer so. Nowadays she looked out of the window and winced. Active gardening had been forbidden her for some time now. No stooping, no digging, no planting, and at most a little light pruning. Old Laycock, who came three times a week, did his best, no doubt, but his best, such as it was, which was not much, was only best according to his lights, and not according to those of his employer. Miss Marple knew exactly what she wanted done, and when she wanted it done, and instructed him duly. Old Laycock then displayed the particular genius, which was that of an enthusiastic agreement and subsequent lack of performance. That's right, missus. We'll have them make us hope is there, and the canterbury's along the wall, and as you say, it ought to be got on with first thing next week. Laycock's excuses were always reasonable, and strongly resembled those of Captain George's in Three Men in a Boat, but avoiding going to sea. In the captain's case, the wind was always wrong, either blowing offshore or inshore, or coming from the unreliable west or the even more treacherous east. Laycock's was the weather. Too dry, too wet, waterlogged, a nip of frost in the air, or else something of great importance had to come first, usually to do with cabbages or Brussels sprouts, of which he liked to grow in ordinate quantities. Laycock's own principles of gardening were simple, and no employer, however knowledgeable, could wean him from them. They consisted of a great many cups of tea, sweet and strong, as an encouragement to effort, a good deal of sweeping up the leaves in the autumn, and a certain amount of bedding out of his own favourite plants, mainly asters and salvias, to make a nice show, as he put it, in summer. He was all in favour of syringing roses for green fly, but was slow to get around to it, and demand for deep trenching for sweet peas was usually countered by the remark that you ought to see his own sweet peas. Proper treat last year, no fancy stuff done beforehand. To be fair, he was attached to his employers, humoured their fancies in horticulture, so far as no actual hard work was involved, but vegetables he knew to be the real stuff of life a nice savoy, or a bit of curly kale. Flowers were fancy stuff such as ladies liked to go in for, having nothing better to do with their time. He showed his affection by producing presents of the aforementioned asters, salvias, lobelia edging, and summer chrysanthemums. Been doing some work at them new houses over at the development. Want their gardens laid out nice, they do. More plants than they needed, so I brought along a few, and I put them in where them old-fashioned roses ain't looking so well. Thinking of these things, Miss Marple averted her eyes from the garden and picked up her knitting. One had to face the fact. St Mary Mead was not the place it had been. In a sense, of course, nothing was what it had been. You could blame the war, both the wars, or the younger generation, or women going out to work, or the atom bomb, or just the government. But what one really meant was the simple fact that one was growing old. Miss Marple, who was a very sensible lady, knew that quite well. It was just that, in a queer way, she felt it more in St Mary Mead, because it had been her home for so long. St Mary Mead, the old world core of it, was still there. The blue boar was there, 
and the church, and the vicarage, and the little nest of Queen Anne and Georgian houses, of which hers was one. Miss Hartnell's house was still there, and also Miss Hartnell, fighting progress to the last gasp. Miss Weatherby had passed on, and her house was now inhabited by the bank manager and his family, having been given a facelift by the painting of doors and windows a bright royal blue. There were new people in most of the other old houses, but the houses themselves were little changed in appearance, since the people who had bought them had done so because they liked what the house agents called old-world charm. They just added another bathroom and spent a good deal of money on plumbing, electric cookers and dishwashers. But though the houses looked much as before, the same could hardly be said of the village street. When shops changed hands there, it was with a view to immediate and intemperate modernisation. The fishmonger was unrecognisable, with new super windows behind which the refrigerated fish gleamed. The butcher had remained conservative. Good meat is good meat if you have the money to pay for it. If not, you take the cheaper cuts and the tough joints and like it. Barnes, the grocer, was still there, unchanged, for which Miss Hartnell and Miss Marple and others daily thanked heaven. So obliging! Comfortable chairs to sit in by the counter, and cosy discussions as to the cuts of bacon and varieties of cheese. At the end of the street, however, where Mr. Tom's had once had his basket shop, stood a glittering new supermarket, anathema to the elderly ladies of St. Mary Mead. Packets of things one's never even heard of, exclaimed Miss Hartnell. All these great packets of breakfast cereal, instead of cooking a child a proper breakfast of bacon and eggs. You're expected to take a basket yourself and go round looking for things. Takes a quarter of an hour sometimes to find all one wants, and usually made up in inconvenient sizes, too much or too little. And then a long queue waiting to pay as you go out. Most tiring. Of course, it's all very well for the people from the development. This point she stopped. Because, as was now usual, the sentence came to an end there. The development period, as they would say in modern terms, it had an entity of its own and a capital letter. Miss Marple uttered a deep exclamation of annoyance. She dropped a stitch again. Not only that, she must have dropped it some time ago. Not until now, when she had to decrease for the neck and count the stitches, had she realised the fact. She took up a spare pin, held the knitting sideways to the light, and peered anxiously. Even her new spectacles didn't seem to do any good. And that, she reflected, was because obviously they came at a time when oculists, in spite of their luxurious waiting rooms, the up-to-date instruments, the bright lights they flash into your eyes, and the very high fees they charged, couldn't do anything much more for you. Miss Marple reflected with some nostalgia on how good her eyesight had been a few, well, not perhaps a few, years ago. From the vantage point of her garden, so admirably placed to see all that was going on in St Mary Mead, how little had escaped her noticing eye. And with the help of her bird glasses, an interest in birds was so useful, she'd been able to see... She broke off there and let her thoughts run back over the past. Anne Prothero in her summer frock going along to the vicarage garden and Colonel Prothero, poor man, a very tiresome and unpleasant man to be sure, but to be murdered like that. 
She shook her head and went on to thoughts of Griselda, the vicar's pretty young wife. Dear Griselda, such a faithful friend, a Christmas card every year. That attractive baby of hers was a strapping young man now and with a very good job. Engineering, was it? He always had enjoyed taking his mechanical trains to pieces. Beyond the vicarage there had been the stile and the field path with Farmer Giles' cattle beyond in the meadows. Where now, now, the development. And why not, Miss Marple asked herself sternly. These things had to be. The houses were necessary and they were very well built, or so she'd been told. Planning, or whatever they called it, though why everything had to be called a close, she couldn't imagine. Aubrey Close and Longwood Close and Grandison Close and all the rest of them. Not really closes at all. Miss Marble knew what a close was perfectly. Her uncle had been a canon of Chichester Cathedral and as a child she'd gone to stay with him in the close. It was like Cherry Baker who always called Miss Marple's old world overcrowded drawing room the lounge. Miss Marple corrected her gently. It's the drawing room, Cherry. And Cherry, because she was young and kind, endeavoured to remember. Though it was obvious to her drawing room was a very funny word to use, and lounge came slipping out. She had of late, however, compromised on living room. Miss Marple liked Cherry very much. Her name was Mrs Baker, and she came from the development. She was one of the detachment of young wives who shopped at the supermarket and wheeled prams about the quiet streets of St Mary Mead. They were all smart and well turned out. Their hair was crisp and curled. They laughed and talked and called to one another. They were like a happy flock of birds. Owing to the insidious snares of higher purchase, they were always in need of ready money, though their husbands all earned good wages, and so they came and did housework or cooking. Cherry was a quick and efficient cook. She was an intelligent girl, took telephone calls correctly, and was quick to spot inaccuracies in the tradesmen's books.' 